Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. This is the word of our Lord. Good morning, family of God. I would like to begin today by making a bold claim about your nature. You are a worshiper. I am a worshiper. All human beings are worshipers. Now, when I say that this morning, I'm not saying you should be a worshiper. I'm not saying you ought to be a worshiper. I'm not saying good Christians are worshipers. I'm saying human beings by nature are worshipers. So today we're talking about worship. Everybody say worship. Worship. That's our key word. We were made to experience the eternal joy of knowing, loving, and worshiping God. Our sinfulness consists of the fact that we turn away from God and fail to worship Him. And when we fail to worship God, we fail to be happy. We fail to fulfill our human nature. Though we're still human beings with dignity created in the image of God, we're living in subhuman ways. But even when we do that, we can't help worship. Because if we're not worshiping God, we're going to worship something else. What I mean by this is that something is going to have the place of ultimate value and significance in my life and in your life. You are going to live for something. I am going to live for something. What we choose to worship will make the difference in our lives between whether we become people of eternal joy everlasting fulfillment, abundant life, or if we go on a path that leads to total self-destruction. So the stakes are really high. Don't take my word for it. This is something that the Scripture teaches repeatedly. Let me just point you to one of the places. I'm going to take you to another psalm, not Psalm 113. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Psalm 16. This is one of my most frequently quoted psalms. I love Psalm 16. And in Psalm 16, verse 11, we read about the joy that God intends for us when we are delighted in him and when we worship him. And it says, the psalmist prays this to God, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. That's what God wants for you today. Everybody say fullness of joy. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's joy that comes from living in the presence of God and enjoying him and worshiping him forever. But seven verses earlier in verse four, we have this warning. Verse four says the sorrows of those who run after another God 
shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So if I go after God and enjoy Him and worship Him and live in His presence, my human nature is fulfilled. I delight in God. I enjoy Him forever. But the text says if you live for any other God, which means if you make anything other than the true God ultimate in your life, your sorrows will increase. Now, Scripture teaches this, but also I think most of us know this experientially if we just think about it. If you don't live for God, you're going to live for something. Maybe it will be a noble ambition, like I'm going to spend my whole life fighting for world peace. Maybe it will be a less noble, more selfish ambition, like I'm going to be really successful or really famous or rich or powerful. Maybe we're just living on a smaller scale. I want to be as comfortable and happy as possible. I want to experience as much material pleasure as possible. We're living for something. But you and I know that if we really devote our lives to any of those things, they will not bring us ultimate satisfaction in the core of our being, and they definitely won't satisfy us forever because we're all going to die. So if I live to be the most successful, I'll never feel successful enough. If I live to be rich and famous, I'll never be rich and famous enough. Even if I live to fight for world peace, guess what, friends? I'll never see it happen. I'll never see it happen. Then I'm going to die. Anything less that we live for will devour us, ultimately. C.S. Lewis expressed this point well in his book, Mere Christianity, when he said this. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. This is helping us think about the nature of sin and the nature of worship and the nature of heaven and hell. When we talk about heaven, we're talking about the joyful experience of living as in God's presence as worshipers forever, united in love with God and with other people. When we talk about hell, the horrible fate of being devoured by judgment and sin, what we're talking about is nothing other than being alienated from God because being alienated from God means being cut off from happiness and joy and life and peace. We were made to worship God. We can put that quote from C.S. Lewis in context. I'm going to read a few sentences before. Listen to this. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could, quote, be like gods. That's a phrase from Genesis 3. Could set up their own as if they had created, set up on their own as if they had created themselves. Be their own masters. Invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Now, I'm spending some time dwelling on this point because I want us to understand what is at stake When we pick up the word of God and read a text like Psalm 113. Look with me again at verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. 
Praise the name of the Lord. What is happening here is that God is speaking to me and to you through his word, commanding us and inviting us to become true worshipers. Which means he's inviting us to fullness of joy. He's inviting us to true humanity. He's inviting us to fulfill our natures. The Psalms do this all the time. They cry out words like praise the Lord, bless the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, come magnify the Lord with me. This is the language of worship. God's inviting us to be worshipers and he's teaching us how to worship him. Another way to say this is God is rescuing us from a self-destructive lifestyle where we make anything besides God ultimate in our lives. And God is calling us to the infinite joy of knowing him. So this is about an invitation to worship. I just want to talk to you about some of the details in this first verse. These words, praise the Lord, begin and end the psalm. And those three English words are the translation of the one Hebrew word, hallelujah. So everybody say, hallelujah. Lots of psalms in the Bible begin and or end with this word, hallelujah. It comes from two words, the word halal, which means to shine, to celebrate, to boast or to praise. As a matter of fact, the Bible warns against several self-destructive strategies for life called foolishness. And one of the kinds of fools in the Bible is called the halal fool. This is a person who boasts in themselves, who glories in themselves. This is a self-focused person. You know some people that are totally self-focused? Let me ask you a question. Are they happy? Their life is self-destructive and their relationships are destructive. An extreme form of this would be like narcissism that's willing to hurt other people. But the cure for this sort of halal, self-destructive, self-focused, narcissistic foolishness is to have a heart that learns how to sing hallelujah. Because this comes from two words, the word halal for celebrate or glory or boast, and the word yah, which is a short form of Yahweh, the name of the Lord God. So what it's saying is glory to God. Let's celebrate God together. Let's make God ultimate in our lives. Everybody cry out hallelujah. The text then continues to speak to us in the imperative. It means it's giving us a command here. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. This is a command, meaning if you don't do it, you're disobeying God. But I'd say it's really more of an invitation than a command. I want you to recognize here, let's just think about this reality. What's happening today is not that... We are a bunch of human beings here, far from God, talking about a book God gave us a long time ago. What's happening is actually that God himself is here with us. Have you thought about that this morning? God, the creator of the universe, God, our savior, the father, son, and Holy Spirit, he's present here. And he is saying to you and to me, I'm inviting you to a lifestyle of worship. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. I want you to think about two words in that verse. First, let's talk about the word name. If you've got a pen, you might circle it in your Bible or in your bulletin. Everybody say name. The name of God is God's self-revelation to his people. God gives himself several names. 
He gives his people several names by which we can call upon him in the Bible. And every time God discloses his name, it's important because the names that God gives us for himself reveal something about who God is. God's name tells us about God's nature, his character, his heart. So when God reveals his name, he reveals his heart, his nature, his character. This is important since we're talking about worship this morning, because what we don't want to do is worship something that we have made up. We do not want to devote ourselves and, and devote our whole lives to a figment of our imagination. One of the phrases that floats around a lot in our culture is, let me tell you what God is to me. Or let me talk to you about my truth. And every time I hear that, I think, uh-oh. It means we're just making stuff up. I don't want to know what God is to me or to you. I want to know who God is in reality and truth. I don't want to know my truth or your truth. I want to know the truth, the reality of God. And the thing about it is, if we start inventing our own ideas about God, we will get it wrong. As St. Augustine said, the human heart is like a factory cranking out idols. We're good at making up fake gods and, and thinking that it's the real God. So if we want to deal with reality, if we want to devote ourselves to what is ultimately good and beautiful and satisfying, we need to learn how to worship God as he really is, which means we've got to learn how to worship God as he has revealed himself to be. So when that word name shows up, it's teaching us something. True worshipers worship God as he has revealed himself to be. That's why we study our Bibles, friends. We study the Bible. That's why we reflect on Jesus, the ultimate self-revelation of God. We stay focused on him because we want to know God, who he is. The second word I want you to focus on in this verse is this word servants. You see it? Praise, O servants of the Lord. So everybody say servants. The servants of God are those who believe what God says about himself and commit themselves to a lifestyle of trust and obedience. They believe God's word. They trust God's promises. And they come to love the God who first loved them. So this is about faith, hope, and love. This is about commitment. This is about discipleship. If we're going to talk about true worship, we've got to talk about who God has revealed himself to be. And we've got to talk about a lifestyle of commitment. Let me see if I can say this a few different ways to drive the point home. The praise that is called for in verse 1 assumes that God has revealed himself to us by grace. We didn't deserve for God to show himself to us, but he just showed himself to us because we love him. And the praise called for in verse 1 assumes that we have believed God and have committed ourselves to trust and obey him. Only when God is known in truth and obeyed in life is true worship possible. Did you catch that? Let me say it again. Only when God is known in truth and obeyed in life is true worship possible. Now, verses 2 and 3 expand on this notion by talking about when God is to be worshipped and where God is to be worshipped. Look at the verses with me. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So when is God supposed to be worshipped? Always and forever. And in verse 3, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Now, that, that's not saying you're supposed to worship God all day and not all night. What it's saying is the sun rises in the east. Let me figure out where east is. Okay, that way. The sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And all the way from the east to the west, God is to be praised. 
So where is God to be worshipped? Everybody say, everywhere. everywhere. This means all nations are called to worship God. The whole world is called to worship God. For all time. Universal worship. Now this should do a few things for us. First of all, this should remind us that the joyful little thing we're doing right here as Christ Community Church today, as we worship Jesus, is that we're entering into something much bigger than ourselves. We're participating in a worship service that started when God first created the first angels and human beings, and that will continue forever. We're participating in a worship service in which millions of Christians all over the world right now are participating in. Christians in Iran and Iraq, I hope you're praying for them this morning. Christians in Brazil, Christians in Kenya, Christians in China, Christians in Germany, Christians all over the world are calling out to the one true God and worshiping Him. And our little church gets to join into that. We're joining in with tons of other churches across Oklahoma City. They're not our rivals. They're not our competitors in some lame branding competition. They are our brothers and sisters. We're a community of worshipers together. We're participating not only with that, but with saints that are in heaven now. With Abraham and Sarah, with Miriam and Mary, and with countless myriads of angels who are worshiping the Lord together. We're joining into something bigger than ourselves. These verses, though, when they tell us that God is supposed to be worshipped forever, and God is supposed to be worshipped all over the world, tell us something important about our mission. Two words need to go together in our minds. Everybody say worship. Everybody say mission. Now, those two words are connected. You can't have true worship without mission. You can't have mission without worship, but there's an order. Worship comes first. Worship is the core. What I mean is this. You and I were created to find ultimate satisfaction in knowing and glorifying God. If we try to find ultimate satisfaction in doing good stuff in the world, it won't work. And if you try to sustain your spiritual life in 2020 through mission, through helping other people, it won't work. The only thing we were made for, the ultimate thing, I should say, that we were made for, and the only thing that will sustain us is worship. But because... God is worthy of worship. We are committed to mission. Mission is one of the ways that we worship God. But also just think about this. If God is supposed to be worshipped forever, that means you and I have an obligation to do everything that we can to make sure that people keep worshipping God on earth after we've gone to worship God in heaven. That means there's a generational discipleship. Ooh, I love that word. It keeps coming up today. Everybody say discipleship. We are pouring into other people so that long after we're not crying out on earth anymore, we're singing much more beautifully, I trust, in heaven, then there's still going to be people worshiping the Lord on earth. This is why we're serious, not just about um, proclaiming the gospel, but about teaching the next generation of believers to become mature and to spiritually reproduce. This is also why we're trying to join with Christians throughout the ages and putting a high priority, like Jesus did, on the biblical instruction of children. Because after we're dead, they're still going to be on the earth. And they need to teach their children. And they need to teach their children. So we got some mamas and daddies in the room. If you're, if you're a parent in the room, could you raise your hand? Listen, I know parenting can sometimes be very challenging. But when you're teaching your little kids about the Bible, when you're praying for them, when you're modeling discipleship for them, you're doing holy work. We've got a lot of people who aren't moms and dads, but you've got spiritual kids that you're teaching throughout this community. And if you're doing that, you're doing holy work because we want people to keep worshiping God after we're gone. 
But if God's not only supposed to be worshipped throughout all generations, but all over the world, this is going to require what we call missions. In other words, going to all nations. So that's why we've sent out some of our best friends to go live across the world. That's why we pray for them. That's why we send a little bit of money that we've got that we can give to missions to overseas international missions. That's why we're trying to send more of you to other nations because God is worthy to be worshipped everywhere and forever. Worship is the core and mission flows out of that. Now, at this point, I need to pause to clarify something. When we're talking about worship, we're not just talking about what we're doing right now. Today, Sunday morning, as we gather together, we are worshiping God. This is an important part of Christian worship. But worship involves much more than when we gather together to sing songs and pray and hear the scriptures. When we're talking about worship, we're talking about a lifestyle. We finally got it to the the title of my sermon. Look, a lifestyle of worship. It's right there on the screen behind me. A lifestyle of worship. One of the great texts of scripture on this is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Some of you all know it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is our spiritual worship. So worship is something that we do 24-7. Let me give you a definition of worship. It's in two sentences. By the way, this, this week I tried to go see how a bunch of theologians and Bible scholars and pastors and teachers defined worship. And there was a lot of good definitions, but most of them were like articles. And I needed like a sentence. I got it down to two sentences. I'm trying to summarize for you. Are you ready? I'm going to say I'm kind of slow. One sentence. We worship God when we respond to God's self-revealing love. So God takes the initiative. God loved us first. When we worship God, when we respond to God's self-revealing love by trusting God, loving him with all that we are, praising him for all that he is and thanking him for all that he has done and joyfully obeying his good commands. I'm going to read that sentence again in case you're a note taker. It's probably still too long, but that's why Jesus gave us a podcast. We were we, there's a second sentence, too, by the way. This is just the first sentence. <laughs> we worship God when we respond to God's self-revealing love by trusting God, loving him with all that we are, praising him for all that he is, thanking him for all that he has done, and joyfully obeying his good commands. And then here's just a little clarification. True worship is graciously empowered by the Holy Spirit and shaped by God's self-revelation in Scripture And in the person of Jesus Christ, true worship is empowered by the Holy Spirit, which means if we're going to learn to live this lifestyle we're talking about, we're going to need God's help. Say, God, we need you. We just sung it. We need the Holy Spirit to shape our hearts and minds. And it's shaped, as we've already said, by God's self-revelation in Scripture and especially in Jesus. Okay, there's your definition. Now, I want to ask the question now. Okay, okay, we're talking a lot about the importance of worship. But why? Why should we live this way? Because this definition of worship I'm talking about places great demands upon us. If we're going to do this, you can't, you can't like halfway do this. It requires everything. It requires us to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Why would we do it? Well, the rest of the psalm answers this, but let me just say two quick reasons from the beginning. Why do we worship God? One, God deserves it. And two, we fulfill our own natures and find ultimate joy when we live as worshipers. 
So number one, God deserves it. Number two, I'm made for it. You're made for it, like we said earlier. Now, I, I already quoted to you Psalm 1611. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But I just want to pause to make a point. As we're studying the Psalms to begin this year, the, the Psalms are not abstract, academic, theological reflections from people that like to sit in the library all day. Okay? The Psalms are filled with the heart cry of poets, warriors, songwriters, struggling saints, people who are running and hiding from people who are trying to kill them. This is the heart cry of people, ordinary people who are living real life and who are experiencing relationship with God. Frequently in the Psalms we hear about the longing and the ache that people that have because they feel far away from God. I'm going to talk about that in two weeks, by the way. A sermon called Soul Thirst. I'm so excited to preach it to you in two weeks. Sometimes we feel like we're in a dry and weary land far from God. But the Psalms are also overflowing with the heart cry of people. They're not saying you should feel good. You should feel very good for, to worship the Lord. And if you're not happy, you're a big sinner. That's not what they're saying. They're often saying, I feel miserable because I feel far from God. But when things are going well, they're saying, I am happy in the Lord. He does satisfy me. Let me just read you a few of these verses. Just listen for a second and soak this in. Psalm 63, 3 through 5. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Do you hear that? This person is saying from their lived experience, God, your love is better than life. When I worship you, I'm satisfied just like I ate a huge feast. Listen to this from Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Why do we devote ourselves to a lifestyle of worship? One, because God is glorious and he deserves it. Two, because ultimate joy and satisfaction to our souls comes when we worship God. Now, the rest of this psalm is really focusing on expanding on this first point. God deserves it. So look with me now at verses Four through nine. I'm just going to summarize real quick what they say. Verses four through nine are calling us to worship by telling us some important things about God. And you can sum it up like this. God is high and God comes down low. That's what it's saying. So everybody say God is high and God comes down low. God is the high and holy one, the almighty, the all-powerful one, the sovereign, glorious king of the universe. And in his mercy and compassion and love, he comes down low to touch and to care for people that are downtrodden and to lift them up from the ash heap. That's what the psalm is saying. Look with me for a moment. Verses 4 through 6 talk about the fact that God is high. The Lord is high Above all nations. You might underline those two words, all nations. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? The answer to that rhetorical question is nobody. 
There's no power like this power. There's no love like this love. There's no wisdom like this wisdom. God is absolutely unique. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens. You might underline those words. On the heavens and on the earth. Now I just want to mention two simple things, simple truths in this passage that should probably be very encouraging to us today because the world is crazy and life is hard. Amen. First of all, God is exalted above the nations. What does that mean? The powers of the earth, the rulers of the earth, the military forces of the earth, the political forces of the earth are not powerful compared to God. They are not powerful. He is king. He is Lord. He is sovereign over it all. And if, if you want reminders of this, just go read the book of Daniel. I've been reading it lately in the Bible. But kings and empires rise and fall. Some of them are good kings. Most of them are bad kings, according to the Bible. Just the, the historical record of the scripture. But even the bad ones, God can use for his purposes. He is sovereign. That should Give us great comfort because our time, like all times of human history, is marked by craziness, violence, political chaos, right? There's political chaos domestically in Oklahoma I don't, and in our nation. I don't have to tell you about that. Just turn on the news. There's also political chaos among the nations. So some of you were probably doing what I did this morning, which is I woke up, read my Bible, prayed. I pulled up the news and started praying some more because headlines are coming up. An Iranian general killed by a U.S. drone strike in Baghdad and hundreds of thousands of protesters gathering overnight, chanting things like, America is Satan. I'm not trying to make a political commentary right now. What I'm trying to say is that the world is always crazy. And the threat of violence and the reality of violence, one of those two is always there in geopolitical history. But what this text is saying is the nations may be scary, but there is a God who is above the nations, no matter who's on the throne, no matter who's in parliament or in Congress, no matter who's in the Oval Office, no matter what is happening in different countries all over the world, no matter whether the church is supported or tolerated or persecuted, Jesus is on the throne and he will get glory for himself through it all. He will guard his saints from all evil. You remember what Chauncey preached to us last week? The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. That means no evil, no pain, no difficulty gets to you unless God lets it, which means he's blocking 99% of it. If you think your life is crazy, just imagine all the stuff that God blocked from hitting you. Okay? And the stuff that he allows to hit us, he's capable to use it for the glory of his name. So God is sovereign above the nations. But then the text also says, not only is he sovereign above the nations, but he's lifted up above the heavens. Now, in a biblical worldview, the heavens, this language of the heavens is used to refer to supernatural powers outside of the human realm, angels and demons. Now, as Christians, we're aware of the fact that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, do we? We wrestle against what? What does Ephesians 6 say? Against, yep, I'm hearing it mumbled all around here. Against rulers, against authorities. Cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a real spiritual battle going on all around us, right? Has anybody experienced a spiritual battle in your family? Anybody seen it in your neighborhood? Have you seen it in your place of work? There's a spiritual battle all around us. But as Martin Luther said, he may be the devil, but he's still just God's devil. All evil forces, not only human evil powers, 
but demonic evil powers are subject to the authority of God. We don't understand God's ways, but he will work all things for his glory and he will work all things for the salvation of his people. We are delivered from the power of evil and one day we will be delivered from the presence of evil. Amen. God is high, but then this is actually even better news. God comes down low. God comes down low. Look at verses 7 through 9. I love this. He, the same God who's above the heavens and above the nations, he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. Anybody relate to that? The poor, the needy? I just look at that and think, that's me. The poor, the needy from the ash heap, to make him sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. The the text is singling out people who are struggling, people who are hurting, people who have unfulfilled longings, people who feel ashamed or who are shamed by their culture. And this time, barren women, women who didn't give birth to children, were looked at as less than human. Not in God's economy, but in the cultural economy. And so they were looked down on. And what we see here is the God who is high up, he comes down to you, wherever you are. And he comes down to the level of hurting people all over our neighborhood and all over the world. And he finds us in the ash heap. And he touches us and he gets down there with us. And then he doesn't leave us there. He lifts us up. Now, we could start to think about many stories of glorious reversals within the biblical testimony. The first one I think about is the story of Hannah. Y'all remember Hannah? Everybody say Hannah. If you don't remember Hannah, you can go this week, read 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2. Hannah was a barren woman who could have no children, and her husband loved her, but she felt ashamed, and she would go and pray to the Lord and pray to the Lord to have a child, and eventually uh, the priest, Eli, tells her, you're going to have a child, and She does have a child. His name is Samuel. The book is named after him. He's going to be an important guy. But when he, when when God answers her prayer and gives her this child and blesses her, she sings a song to the Lord, which is being quoted right here in Psalm 113. Go read 1 Samuel chapter 2, and you'll see that the psalmist is quoting Hannah's song to the Lord. Because he says, God, I've experienced in my own life now the reality of your grace and mercy and justice that you lift up the poor from the ash heap, and you take the barren woman and make her the joyous mother of children. It gets even better because this is not the only time that Hannah's song is echoed. Lots, the Bible riffs off of Hannah's song a lot, the most famous of which was a song that you may have read in the last few weeks because it's the song of a mother who get, had a different kind of miraculous birth, Mary. And she sings, Lord, you have taken those who are low and lifted them up. So that this psalm is pointing not only to the past and all the people that God has helped, but it's pointing forward to Jesus Christ and to his birth. Not only that, these verses should cause us to think about the Exodus. Everybody say Exodus. Now, this psalm, I told you, begins with the word hallelujah. And it's actually the first of a series of six psalms. That are called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. What does that mean? It means that when the people of Israel celebrate the Passover. And they remember how we were slaves in Egypt. And God brought us out of our slavery. And made us free. 
and the angel of death passed over our houses because our houses were sprinkled with the blood of the lamb. When they celebrate that great Passover celebration, they start the celebration by singing Psalms 113 and 14. And then they end the celebration by singing the next four of the Hallel Psalms. Now, one of the things that's beautiful about this is that this is saying to us, people of God, remember your history. You were all in desperate straits. You were all slaves. You were all oppressed by powers too great for yourselves. And I rescued you. I liberated you by grace. This is also meaningful for another reason, because it means Psalm 113 and the next five psalms were the last psalm sung by Jesus Christ. When he had the Passover celebration and inaugurated the Lord's Supper right before he went to the cross, he sung these words. God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He, gave, he gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Jesus sung those words with his disciples, and then he went and fulfilled Psalm 113 in two glorious ways. This psalm points forward to Jesus in two glorious ways. Everybody say it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus, first of all, because Jesus is true man. He's true God and true man, one person and two natures. And as a true human being, Jesus, on his cross, right after he sung this psalm, went and offered the ultimate act of human worship on our behalf. We see the ultimate act of trusting God, of loving God, of obeying God, when the man, Jesus Christ, obeyed his Father all the way to the cross. Jesus died on the cross because he loves you, but Jesus also died on the cross because he loves his Father. And because he has succeeded offering to God the perfect worship, which we have failed to offer to God, then we get to join into the worship of Jesus Christ by grace. We're forgiven for our failure and invited into his worship. But Jesus also fulfills this psalm in another way. As a human being, Jesus fulfills the command of the psalm by offering God the perfect human act of worship. But as God, Jesus gives us the perfect, ultimate demonstration of the truth that God is high and God is low. If you want to know the depths to which God will go out of love for his people, where do you look? You look at the cross of Jesus Christ. And we look at the cross and you see the disfigured face of this Jewish rabbi who is suffering and who's bleeding and who's praying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And who's looking to the thief at his side and saying, today you will be with me in paradise. And then who's crying out, it is finished. And then he's hanging there, a dead, naked corpse. You can look at that cross and say, that is God. And that is how far God's love would lead him to go for me. So if you're here today and you think, I've done too much sin, I've done too much wrong, I've gotten down in the filth, God couldn't love me. No, God already went way lower than you've ever gone to rescue you. And if you want to know something about the height, the power, the sovereignty of God, just wait three days. And look at Jesus. The pain, the cords of death could not hold him. He rises from the grave and he ascends to the right hand of the Father and sits as a throne, on a throne as the Lord of creation. So that if you and I trust in Jesus Christ, we will never be put to shame. Our sins will be forgiven. Despite all the evil that we've done, we're invited to enjoy worshiping God forever. That's the gospel. That's the heights of God's glory. That's the depths to which God's love will go for you and me. Now, what I want to encourage you with today, friends, is as we're going into a new year, 
as a church family. I want to encourage you and I want to invite all of us to make the main thing the main thing again. This psalm is given to us by God to say, friends, you are called to worship. That's who you are. That's the center of your life. If you become distracted by sinful things, it's time to come back to this. But also, if you become distracted by good things, if you have made the mistake of thinking your life is all about mission, I'm calling you today to come back and say, no, my life is all about worship. It's all about knowing God and responding to God. I want to encourage us to go into this new year by renewing our commitment to cultivate the habits of faithful corporate communal worship, what we're doing right now, the liturgy of the Christian church, the rhythm of preaching and of singing and of praying together and of fellowship and of the Lord's table trains our hearts and minds to be people who live a lifestyle of worship day in and day out. I want to call you to recommit yourself at the beginning of this year to the personal disciplines that cultivate a lifestyle of worship, reading God's word so that you know his name. You know his heart and his character, responding with praise and thanksgiving. And I want to call you to a renewed emphasis on mission, but not for its own sake. I want to call you to renewed emphasis as an expression of our worship. In other words, to a daily life that is not saying, I'm going to find meaning and significance of For my life by doing good things in the world. Because if we say that we're going to get frustrated by all the people in our life because they make it harder. Instead, we're going to say, I'm going to respond to God's love for, for me by treasuring him and expressing that love for him in the way that I relate to people every day. And we do that largely by joining in the work that God himself is said to do in this psalm. What is God always doing in love? He's reaching down to hurting people. Needy people, and by grace, he's lifting them up. That's been our experience of salvation. And a lifestyle of worship means committing to join God in that work. Now, I've already said this obligates us to do the work of evangelism and discipleship and missions so that God will be worshipped forever. But we can add to that. This calls us to the works of mercy and love and justice. You see, when we understand Psalm 113, it'll start making other texts of Scripture make sense to us, like James 1.27. You remember that one? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You could translate that, instead of saying religion that is pure and undefiled, you just say worship. Worship that is pure and undefiled before God is this, Visit widows and orphans in their affliction. In other words, care for the needy souls of human beings and care for the needy bodies of human beings and care for the needy hearts of human beings. We're all needy human beings and God has loved us. So let's share that love with others. So the year of 2020, we're calling ourselves back to refocus. It's all about God, which means the center of our life is worship. Everybody say worship. Worship as a lifestyle of responding to the love of God. Now we're going to immediately apply this. By going to the Lord's table, which for centuries Christians have viewed as the central act of our corporate worship. Because when we go to the Lord's table, part of what we're saying is, God, it's not about us, it's about you. We didn't initiate this relationship with you. You initiated it with us because Jesus gave everything for us. We're responding to God's initiating love and by faith saying we recommit 
to trust you and to love you. So let me say a prayer for us together, and then we'll go continue worshiping the Lord through the Lord's table. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this text of Scripture. And the, the deep yearning of my heart for myself and for all of my sisters and brothers here, Lord, is that we would be a people who live lifestyles of true worship. I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring these things to our mind frequently this week and in the coming months and years. When we start living for anything other than you, that you would call us back and you would whisper to our souls, you're called to be a worshiper. That's your fulfillment. That's your joy. Come and worship me, Lord, that your spirit would touch our hearts in that way. And even now, as we go to the Lord's table, would you refresh our hearts again with the knowledge of your initiating grace and mercy? So that we will overflow with true worship before you. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.